Okay, everybody, welcome to the Mind Hunter Companion. Uh, as always, my co-host is Peter, and I remain Doug. Welcome, Doug. Welcome, Peter. Uh, we are going to do season two, episode six, a pretty big episode uh, for the show. Uh, difficult to follow on the heels of season two, episode five, which I think so far has been the best episode of season two, but still a, a good outing. Um, should we just jump right in? Yeah, we start with a mis misbehaving um, photocopy machine and an even more and misbehaving serial Rader. killer. Yeah. So uh, we begin with Dennis Rader, who's in the library at uh, is it like Wichita State University, I think. Something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, he is uh, essentially gets caught uh, photocopying his his poetry and his kind of weird sort of symbol uh, in the copy machine. And he has to get assistance from somebody who works at the university. He's like uh, some poor, you know, college student working for his, like part of his financial aid package. <laughs> and then he has to get berated by Dennis Rader. Right. Although it's better than being dismembered by Dennis Rader, I guess. Um, True. And Rader correctly realizes that uh, part of his paper is still in the machine. And he doesn't want to leave until he gets everything. Yeah, he uh, he has the old copier jam, you know. So like his kind of compromising, weird serial killer writings are jammed to the machine. And right, the guy's he knows like, he can't you know, leave it there. Yeah, and the dude's like, "Well, we're gonna have to call a Xerox guy, so you know, take off." And he's like, "I'm not leaving until you call the guy, fix it immediately. I'm that's my property in the machine." Remember what a big deal Xerox machines were? Holy crap, were Xerox machines cool? And yeah. like, I remember that our public library had two, and it was just amazing. Just so you could, you know, Xerox pictures out of a book or something. Ten cents. I know, it's true. It's exactly what it was. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, you know, by the way, Dennis Rader is not caught until 2005, which is just an astonishing thing to think about yeah um you know it, they don't uh you, you at some point along you kind of realize who the killer is right all these episodes were, were whatever 16 episodes into the series but um if you if you google him at all you realize that that this guy just was he was he wasn't caught for 20 years and raider is almost entirely caught through his own missteps like raider cannot resist communicating with the press and other things and that's that's how they catch him down the road but right we're getting ahead of ourselves but he got away he, he actually committed you know I mean, it was 30 years after some of his crimes. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, incredible. You know, but again, it makes you think about Kemper, you know, like we only know from the ones who got caught. Yep. Um, so after our uh, opening credits, we find the team in the basement of Quantico looking at pictures of six dismembered uh, victims who were all gay uh, and were wearing uh, fetish gear. And then yeah. there's a lot of talk about... Um, S and M, and what exactly is S and M? Uh, you know, like is it a deviance? Is it a fetish? Exactly what is it? And they sort of, they sort of disagree. And and Agent Smith specifically says that it's not S and M; it's S M. 
<laughs> like he's kind of specific about the terminology. Yeah. Who would have thought that guy was an expert? It's always the quiet one, you know? Well, like um, I said about finding him in his bathroom. <laughs> and then Wendy, you know, Wendy, uh, comes in and she's a little bit academic about it. And, uh, you know, Wendy sort of explains to the group, uh, that, S&M is like an exchange of, of power and control uh, between a dominant and a submissive. And she gives like a little like 15 second lecture to the team, essentially saying that pain and violence are just two types of currency within that exchange. Um, and she says that there's, you know, all sorts of other aspects that can be in that. Um, it's it's funny kind of funny, like, Sorry, she makes it seem like she makes uh, this really like strange, uh, deviant, sometimes deviant behavior seem super dry. Just in well, like right, 10 but seconds. That's Wendy, you know, like, I mean, for Wendy, everything is reducible to, you know, descriptors and patterns. And it's Analysis, funny because, yeah. you know, and, and Bill is just kind of having none of it. Like, Bill is sort of thumbing through the photos of like these dismembered corpses and he's just like rolling his eyes at the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they get uh, a news report um, that uh, the FBI is opening an investigation in Atlanta, right? Sort of moving things forward. And they see the commissioner, uh, who they have not had good interactions with, uh, on the TV. And that's how they find out about it, just like everybody else on television. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they've... they. Uh, they want the FBI to coordinate with the task force and the behavioral science unit is uh, sent to Atlanta and Holden is the first one out. And, and this is, uh, this comes as of a meeting with gun, uh, you know, uh, you know, gun is talking to the director when they walk in, uh, yeah, the, F the director of the FBI. So right. all their, their boss, basically, you know, Jagger Hoover's replacement essentially. Uh, and then, Gunn sort of, you know, gives them his imprimatur and the green light to go down there. So, right. And he uh, tells them, you know, don't do like last time, like be, be savvy. Right. And he specifically says that he wants the beer to come out uh, smelling good. Right. And he specifically tells Holden to play it smart. And he, and he recognizes that they are going out on a limb. Right. Uh, yeah. And they, they like they're they're vulnerable. Like if this goes well, it goes great. If it doesn't go well, it's kind of their second flop in Atlanta. And then uh, Bill heads down to his office uh, and then uh, he runs into Wendy and he he uh, there's talk about, you know, who should do what. Right. Holden runs down to Atlanta. Bill's got to take care of some stuff here. Um, uh, well, then, Wendy uh, says, you know, how are we supposed to get anything done with you guys being shipped out of town all the time? Right. And there's a, there's kind of the presumption that she wants to just keep going in their absence, right? So she says that she and Smith will take on the Bateson case, right? And, and Wendy acknowledges that she is worried about Holden being down there alone. Like, he's fucked up a couple of times now. Right. And they're worried that it could happen again. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, it's a short scene, although I like all the Bill and Wendy scenes. Like they have like a little like side relationship going on where they kind of speak the truth to each other. 
mm-hmm. you know, in a way that the other characters don't really have. You know, like right. you kind of get the sense that Bill likes Wendy in a way that's a little more, a little more closer to heart than he likes Holden. Like he sort of recognizes Holden's value, but Holden frustrates him. Where he like Wendy's more like, Wendy's more like kind of like a partner and almost kind of sort of a friend. Well, I think that Holden is, he's worried that Holden's not stable. I mean, since Holden lost, you know, lost his shit over in uh, California, I think, you know, they probably were closer, but Bill's got to worry about him. Well, and I think that... Wendy seems stable. Well, and also, like, Bill is worried that Holden's going to bring heat down on them. Like, like Bill, sorry, that Holden kind of blew up Atlanta on them the first time. Yeah. Right? So, So he has sort of, like personal and professional worries about Holden. Yeah. Holden seems to have changed, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so then we cut to Bill and Nancy at home. Uh, Nancy again, sporting the best perm ever seen on Netflix. Um, and, uh, she informs Bill that Brian has, uh, sort of regressed in his behavior and he's bedwetting again. And, and she's finding him playing with his baby toys. Um, just sort of like the the ever worsening and more difficult troubles in the Tench household. Like they can't really catch a brace, a break. Sorry. Yeah. Um, she starts out with sort of just just um, descriptive kind of explanation of what's happening on. It takes her a little while to start freaking out in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> like well, characteristic. And you know, Nancy. I mean, Bill too, but Nancy to a greater extent. Like she's she's brittle. You know what I'm saying? Like, like she has no escape. Like Bill can go to the office. Bill can fly to Atlanta and worry about some other stuff. Like, like Nancy is home with Brian all day, every day. Like she doesn't get any respite, you know? And like Bill's, you know, Bill's sort of pleased that, look, I'm coming home every Thursday night. I'm doing what I can. Like they kind of fall on deaf ears with her. Like she's, she's clearly running out of gas. She's also, you know, she's clearly, I mean, he really does not have a choice. He has to go for work. You could imagine him going over to Gunn and saying, hey, I can't go to Atlanta because I, I got to take care of my family. I mean, basically, he'd be done. Right. And, and it would be done in a very polite way, but he'd be out. Yeah, he'd right. be, he'd be, his career basically would be over. He'd be basically working in the file room. Well, and Bill kind of knows too, like they're kind of on the edge of greatness with the BSU stuff, but it's not helping him at home at all. Right. And she, uh, you know, she's really not, she's getting more needy, you know, like she, she kind of, you can tell she's, she's not satisfied with this answer that, you know, and he tells her, in a way that you can tell that this is something they know how to communicate about, right? He knows how to say when he has to do something for work. She typically knows what that means through the right, years. Right, it means suck it up. It means that he really doesn't have a choice because otherwise he would come home. And, right. Right, and, and she's not really accepting of that answer. But, but she and kind of the two of them are fraying at the edges. Like you don't get a sense that the marriage is in jeopardy, but you get the sense that like, there's a lot of like awkward silences or like when the meal is over, you know, Nancy gets up and goes to a different room to be by herself or something, you know, and Bill's sitting there with a drink and a cigarette, you know? Well, Nancy's always losing it, you know, uh, semi inappropriately 
when any kind when they have to deal in a practical sense with any of their son's problems but bill was sort of losing it with manson you know bill's sort of losing it at work he's barely able to kind of hold his tongue sometimes yeah yeah it's true um yeah it's a good way to put it um so uh we we finished this scene by bill sticks his head in on the sleeping brian and kind of doesn't really know what to think or what to make of it. Um, right. And then we uh, we cut uh, with a little bit of a tilt shift camera shot uh, to Rikers Island, where uh, where Wendy and Agent Smith. Uh, he's only really referred to as Bateson, but this is actually Paul Bateson, um, who um, was basically very very deeply involved in the leather subculture uh, in New York City. Um, uh, and basically uh, was involved in a series of uh, killings of gay men in New York City. Yeah. Um, by the way, did you know that in real life, Paul Bateson is in The Exorcist? Uh, well, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page <laughs> yeah, right now. He's a, says... He has a brief scene in The Exorcist, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, he is, you know, he's kind of... He's a little Kemper-like in the sense that he's very, very insightful, and he has thought a lot about this stuff. Yeah, he's pretty sharp. Yeah, he's intelligent, and he's verbal, um, and he's able to talk about some very, very intense and emotionally upsetting things with some dispassion and objectivity, which... um, intrigues wendy and sort of like you can see like agent smith sort of curling his lip a little bit right um and they talked a lot about this victim addison and about how they bonded in violence right um and then uh he acknowledges that he himself killed addison by hitting him with a skillet uh, and then stabbed him um uh, and he and he says that he interestingly he says that he killed Addison because it wasn't a soul act like he felt that he was maybe a bit of a poser and he wanted a real connection with somebody that he wasn't getting with him. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, this is you know this is pretty far down the rabbit hole for Agent Smith. Like he's kind of he's a little bit agog. You know what I mean? Like this is very very much out of his wheelhouse. Well, it's kind of it's kind of a subtle comedic. He serves another comedic relief uh, principle. I mean, I was kind of laughing out loud at that during the interview because Bateson is, is kind of goading him, like he's basically making eyes at him, um, and and referring to you know all these kind of weird, you know, very explicit sexual details. And whenever he says them, he'll kind of like look over, almost and almost wink and leer at right. Yeah, Smith. a little, yeah, a little bit of a dare. And uh, he, I mean, he clearly picks up on, and 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 Smith just he's trying to be professional, but he's clearly not comfortable. Um, and so Smith, once again, Agent Smith is <laughs> is like a fish out of water again, and it's kind of actually I was laughing; it was funny. And you know, they kind of, kind of they scene. use costuming a little bit too, I think, to sort of convey their states. Like you know, Agent Smith is buttoned up in his shirt, and his tie is at the top knot. And you know, Wendy is wearing like this very open collar. Like she's you know, like their their clothes kind of convey their like intellectual curiosity and their emotional engagement with Bates. 
Um, yeah. You know, and, and Wendy, you know, Wendy's right there with him beat for beat. Like, you know, this is not Wendy's jam, but she's she's following along and she's she's understanding what he's talking about. Um, you know, interestingly, he he makes the point that uh, he 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 started off as a bottom and learns to be a top by being a bottom, which is kind of yeah. an interesting concept. Um, and then, you know, he sort of there's some. You know, it's funny because he openly talks about some killings, but he denies that he's involved in others that he's been implicated in. And he kind of feels like, you know, when the police are looking for anybody that could have, you know, been a gay guy into leather that was killing people, they went after him. But, you know, he may not be the only person out there. Like he specifically says, well, some of the things I did and some of the things I didn't. And they, you know, they kind of threw a lot on my plate, but they just kind of framed me, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think he was only convicted for uh, that one killing, um, wasn't he, of uh, Veril or whatever? Um, yeah, I don't know. I actually have to look that one up. I think um, that they that he he doesn't admit to the other killings that, and yet in the interview he, um, you know, in the interview he he kind of talks about them with with a certain degree of expertise. So they they leave it unclear whether he really was involved or not, um, right? Because I guess in the end he's only he's only suspected of being a serial killer, right? They couldn't right. actually prove it at right. his he, trial. He, he went down for one murder, right? Um, and then um, you know he. He again, he's kind of like the he's the East Coast Ed Kemper, you know, like he's able to sort of put himself in the mind of the person who is potentially doing these six uh, killings in New York. Uh, and he's able to sort of give a pretty detailed description of the thought process of that person right. uh, without actually really conveying to you, the viewer that he's talking about himself, but like, he's basically saying like, look, I, I lived and breathed that scene and I understood it from top to bottom, no pun intended. Um, and, uh, you know, here's what, here's what is probably going on. And then he very abruptly ends the interview. Um, you know, like, like they're sort of moving along and he's giving them a lot of insight. And then the, he abruptly ends the interview sort of stands up and says he wants to be done which is interesting. Yeah. The guy who plays Bateson looks kind of like a young Mark Hamill, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, he, he looks kind of like Bateson. Like they, <laughs> yeah. Once again, they made him, you know. Yeah, no, they got They kind of got the beard and the haircut right, but he looks kind of like Mark Hamill, like Mark Hamill in the seventies, not, not Mark Hamill now, obviously. Yeah. Um, but he just sort of, it's interesting the way he just sort of is like, he, you know, without even turning away, he calls for the, the guard who's watching or is supposed to be guarding the door. And he just says, you know, I'm ready. Like I'm done. And then he stands up and the interview is over and they're, they're both sort of left a little stunned that he's just decided that this is the moment that he wants to be done, uh, which is an interesting scene. And it's not the first time that we've seen uh, a killer do that in the show. Uh, just decide yeah. that he wants to finish and be done. The guy who threw the, uh, the bird into the fan did something very similar. Yeah. Um, 
We then uh, cut to Atlanta, where Holden is alone. He arrives at the task force office, which we are shown in stark contrast to prior, is super busy, and he runs uh, into Jim Barney very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting how much of a character they've made Jim Barney out to be. You know, like when we when we first saw him, you think, you know, he's just a little one shot, like he's not the guy that they hire because they hire Agent Smith. And then you don't realize that he's actually going to become a major player much later on in the show. Yeah. Um, and then they get a call uh, uh, telling that uh, a random caller says that one kid is going to die a month. And he mentions Sigmund Road, which in the past has not yielded anything uh, and then holden always quick to shoot from the hip uh says that uh the caller is a hoax and the cops yeah, all disagree which is kind of like that's the theme for all of atlanta yeah although at least the police chief does give an explanation about why he disagrees he says you know this kid's missing there are all these kids missing and dead and this is the only lead i have and that, that's a reasonable defense, even though Holden's probably right, because Holden explains why. He says, this is a white guy. This guy is not looking for public. Why is he calling the cops? If, if he, you know, he's, he's not looking for publicity the way the other killers do by going directly to the press. He's looking to cause disruption by calling the police as a, as a Klansman would. But, you know, it doesn't indicate real real uh the intent of a serial killer he's not behaving the way the other serial killers they know would and so holden makes a good points um well and 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 you know you know you're biased because you know we've seen holden proven right multiple times like you as a viewer are a little biased but the the sheriff is sort of the voice right of the of you know joe six-pack cop who is not familiar with the bsu right doesn't these are these are not their sort of uh, you know, pounding the pavement police techniques that they're used to. Right. And, well, the, and the concepts don't exist broadly in the public yet at all. At, or, or in the, in, yeah, or even in the, in the police vernacular, right? Right. The, the concepts, right. They, they don't exist. And the cop tells him that they staked at Sigmund Road and found nothing. Um, and then but they're going to you know, search. Yeah, they're going to search. And then Holden basically kind of bluntly tells him, tells the, the police chief, you just won't find anything. Like, there's nothing there. He's not your guy, right? This guy just wants to sow terror. Like, this might right. be an actual Klansman calling just to make people afraid. But but right. whoever this guy is, right, he's, he's not uh, a serial killer. No, he's not. He, and he's, he's certainly not their serial killer. Yeah. No, they, they both make sort of reasonable points. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and the police chief, you know, this guy, he's in a bunch of episodes and, you know, they, they kind of purposely start out by making him out to be kind of a Bubba kind of like Southern cop. Yeah. And he's kind of revealed in incremental, in an incremental way over a bunch of scenes. And he's actually not stupid and he's pretty experienced and he understands Atlanta in a way that Holden doesn't. Now it, it also gives him some blinders that maybe Holden doesn't have. Holden has his own blinders, I guess. But, uh, but you know, it's interesting because he, his character becomes a little more layered and a little more sophisticated uh, as the, the, the series goes on. Well, even though you think Holden's probably right, he does, you know, 
like I said, he does make Mount a very effective brief defense or explanation of why they're going to expend all this effort searching the, the place from the tip. He says, this is what I got. Right. And you the know? scene, you know, the scene ends with the police chief walking out and Barney kind of gives him a, a look like Barney's like little look without any vocalization kind of conveys like, like you're not making friends. You're kind of pushing too hard. Like this is not a winning approach. Like he has his mouth open a little bit and then Holden just looks at him exasperated. Like with this, I'm right. He's wrong. Look. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, and look, Holden is young and he's been right a couple of times and he, you know, he's feeling his oats. Like he's so sure about this case and the way it's going to go down. Like, like, you know, he kind of can't see it any other way. Yeah. Holden. Right. Yeah. And, and he happens to be right. You know, he but, does happen to be right, and it's actually a famous part of the case that we'll get to a little further on uh, about the fact that the, the the killer does turn out to very much match the profile. Yeah, uh, that 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 uh, Holden uh, slash John Douglas has come up with, but it, it becomes a very very controversial point of the case. Yeah. Um, so then we cut to Bill, Nancy, and Brian with the therapist who uh, is working hard to engage Brian and uh, Brian will kind of have none of it. Like he's withdrawn and doesn't really say anything like the, right. the therapist is trying to get him to, yeah, he's trying to get him to talk about the events at the rental, uh, sorry, at the, the apartment, the house for sale. And he just, you know, like Brian is sort of kicking the bottom of the coffee table. Yeah. Um, to, and that's that's really all that he can muster. And I don't know if you noticed, like it looks like they've changed Brian's haircut to make him look a little more juvenile. You know, he's tiny. Like I kind of didn't realize I mean, he looks so young in the, in the episode. Yeah. Did they change yeah. Brian's? It's possible that they changed Brian's. Like he looks very diminutive in this episode. Yeah. Uh, and again, they've definitely given him a more sort of juvenile haircut than he had. And some of his other episodes when he was functioning at a higher uh, level. I think um, the old the old Brian got too big for his britches in the contract <laughs> negotiation. They booted him out. You know, that reminds me of like that famous story about the Brady Bunch that uh, when the Brady Bunch was a huge hit, uh, the girl who played Cindy, uh, Eve, uh, Eve, no, Eve Plum was uh, Jan. Well, the girl who played Cindy, her parents demanded more money. And they said, mm-hmm. look, you know, our daughter's making you a lot of money and we want a bigger piece of the pie. And uh, Sherwood Schwartz famously said, a lot of little girls look just like your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And he said, you know, if you want to pull your kid, okay, you know, I'll find somebody else tomorrow. Right. Um, uh, so who, I don't know, we have to look and see if this is the same kid or not. But again, you know, we, we hear some of the stuff we've heard before that Brian is sleeping with his baby toys. He's bedwetting. He's even thumb sucking all this regressive behavior. And Wendy uh, is kind of predictably defensive. Nancy, yeah, Nancy, Nancy starts, yeah. She, yeah, she starts freaking Nancy's, out at this point. Yeah. And she's very, very uh, defensive. Um, yeah, and, too and much Nancy, so, yeah. she actually wants him to forget. Like she doesn't like the fact that they keep bringing this stuff up with him in the therapy sessions all the time. And the therapist says, 
He's not going to forget this. Children don't forget trauma yeah. like this. And, yeah. you know, his, he's basically saying like the reason he's, that he's acting like this is not because we're bringing it up. It's because he's in, he's terribly, he's terribly affected by what happens and he can't express any of it. Right. And he's been through a terrible psychological trauma that he played a role in. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like the implication is that maybe he's trying to work out like maybe feelings of guilt and things like that. Yeah. And, and the, the thing, the problem with Nancy is that, Nancy is coming up with rather uh, short-sighted and and probably harmful uh, explanation and strategy based on you know her thought. I mean, it's obvious that he started bedwetting before anybody knew what was going on, but long before he was in therapy, and so he he clearly has been you know under distress. Uh, and under duress since the event. Right. And then we talked in a prior episode about how he once said he was sorry after he wet himself yeah. and they thought he was talking about that, but he's really talking about the, the boy who died at the house. Right. His involvement, the event. Um, and, you know, and again, you know, this, the therapist visit is, you know, once again, like shows how understrained Nancy is, like how poorly she's dealing with everything. She's not doing well. Yeah. And, and the woman who plays her does a great job in this scene. Like if you watch the way she's sort of like sitting and she's tense and like, she's like taking deep breaths. Like she's really, really struggling. Yeah. And the scene is shot. They kind of go between a yeah. sort of a medium shot and a long shot to show the room. And it's very, it's an uncomfortable looking scene. And the room is very sort of really kind of realistically institutional. Uh, and they're sort of sitting there awkwardly. And it's it's an interesting choice of uh, camera work and editing. Yeah, the furniture looks just like the furniture in my dorm from college. <laughs> right. <laughs> Talk about institutional. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we, we incongruously cut from this super-duper tense therapy session uh, to the Stone Ridge Resort in Virginia where Bill... Uh, has been roped into attending the FBI retreat. And he's driving over this sort of like beautifully manicured golf course, you know, like, like Bill's as far from relaxed and in a good mood as he can possibly be. And he's got to suffer through this resort thing. And he's rushing in like kind of at the last minute because he's been dealing with all this stuff with, with, uh, with his kid. Right, and it's and been it, made very clear to him by Gunn that he is expected to perform on command in front of the the bureau director. Yeah, and he walks in like at the last second, and Gunn's like, "You you finally got like you just got here? <laughs> I can't believe that." And they sort of contrast Bill's workaday suit with Gunn's plaid pants and sort of golfing attire. Yeah, Gunn's been there a while, right? Sort of preparing himself and getting in the the mindset and the milieu of this FBI retreat. And Gunn right. clearly understands the importance and has been there a while and has sort of set the stage and set the atmosphere. And, you know, and Bill just like rushes in from his appointment with Brian, essentially. And, and he lies, you know, he lies to Gunn about why he's late. Like, he, he can't yeah. say where he actually was, so he makes up a bullshit story about, oh, I had to clear off my desk before leaving town, sort of giving Gunn the impression that, you know, he was at his desk right down in the basement. Slaving away. Right, yeah. exactly. And uh, it's the only know, thing he could say, actually, though, like, I, I don't, 
I don't blame him. Right. And then it turns out that Bill gets a little bit lucky that the FBI director, uh, who was a judge in, in a prior career we hear and likes to be referred to uh, as a judge, um, is late. So uh, Bill is actually not late. And like literally as they're talking, the judges advance people walk into the lobby. Uh, so so Bill gets away with his, you know, his little bit of subterfuge. Yeah, but he makes it by like two minutes yeah, ahead yeah. of the guy. Um, and he ta- and Gunn specifically tells him like lose the tie, right? You yeah, go change, uh, hurry up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. The ju- and then the judge walks in and uh, Bill runs off to his room. Yeah. Um, you know, you feel kind of bad for Bill, like, like, you know, Bill needs a break as much as Wendy does. And, you know, both Wendy and Bill have too much on their plate. Um, and neither of them get any sort of respite. Uh, and then we have uh, an interesting follow-on scene, sort of still saying, still staying with the Tench household, where Nancy uh, realizes that Brian has gone missing. And she ends up sort of like frantically running around trying to find him and she finds him at a little park where he's sort of creepily kind of giving like the Kubrick stare to this little girl on a swing and the mother kind of very very quickly hustles the kid away yeah he's sort of ominously and he doesn't respond to his mom like he just he just doesn't say anything yeah it reminds you that reminds me like that opening shot of clockwork orange where alex is in the milk bar sort of staring at you through his hooded lenses you know or sort of sort of danny in the shining it's very very kubrickian and you know there's kind of an unspoken implication in this scene that that the mother of the little girl knows that brian was implicated in the in the death of the kid like you don't know if that's true or not but like she looks over, she sees what Brian is doing, and then like very quickly, she's like she gets the girl off the swing, and they're gone. Yeah, it's almost like he was saying Radrom. <laughs> yeah, like it's, a you know, it's, ago. and it's bad for Nancy because you know, like Nancy kind of realizes like oh, the other kid's kind of becoming a pariah, right? And you don't know what her relationship with this other mother is. Have they had playground conversations before? Or no, and the mother sort of makes up kind of a, a BS excuse, like, oh, grandma's waiting, we gotta go, bye bye bye. And she gives <laughs> Nancy an over the shoulder look. Yeah, and the like, over the shoulder look is it's a little bit like like guarded and I am watching and I'm aware and and you know keep your little murderer away yeah, from I'm my gonna kid. keep you at arm's length. Um you know, and it's Nancy funny, it's, kind of you know, she's she's you know gonna wonder like is he really a creepy, dangerous little kid? Like, cause he's sure acting strangely. Right. And, and she tries to kind of like tell Brian not to do this. And he runs off on her. You know, it's, in some ways it's the best scene in the episode, uh, because a lot is conveyed with very, very, uh, little dialogue. Uh, and yeah. and again, it, it says a lot about Brian. It says a lot about Nancy, and uh, it conveys a lot about maybe how they're being perceived in their neighborhood. You know, the scene with the shrink also, I think, was excellent. But yeah, yeah. I think these two are are really really good. Uh, we then cut back to Rockdale, Georgia, where the police are uh, uh, staking out. I think it's Sigmund Road, and uh, they don't find anything. Where's right, so. stakeout? 
Ever. <laughs> but, you know, Holden, to his credit, he uses this opportunity to make nice a little bit with the police chief. Like, he's been proven right. He doesn't um, rub it in. A, he doesn't rub it in. Yeah, exactly. And, they, you yeah. know, they kind of have to suspend operations because, like, the helicopter is running out of gas. and Yeah, they've, cl- they've been doing this, like, massive, man, you know, search with with all hands on deck just the amount of overtime they must have just spent was astronomical you know and the helicopters flying around and it's just gotten them nothing and they clearly have been doing this all day yeah and 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 they have nothing to show for it and you know it's probably hot and humid and they've been standing outdoors you know so it's a good scene and the cop gets to vent a little bit to holden and then holden Holden sort of starts to align himself with the cop, you know, like it's sort of, it's a subtle shift in Holden's behavior, but he's able to sort of, um, not be a dick. Yeah. Not, not be Holden for just five (laughs) minutes. Right. Just kind of stop being Holden. Um, and then the, the, they get sort of attacked by a gaggle of reporters and Holden just very, very quickly turns on his heels before the reporters can, kind of get to him but they still sort of look at him and they end up chasing him down the road and he doesn't say anything and then barney sort of leaps into the rescue you know barney barney's almost a little too perfect like i don't know like they're making him a little one-dimensional and barney sort of swoops in at the magic moment and puts hold in an fbi car so he doesn't have to face the pressed mm-hmm I don't know. Like, I think I think it would be interesting. If, like, like it would be better. I think if Barney was bitter about not being chosen for the BSU, and if he said something like, "Hey, I'm doing the work of the BSU down here, aren't I?" You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like he's. I don't know. He's. Why don't you get Agent Smith down here to help out? Yeah, he's a little too. You know, like squeaky clean. Sanguine. Do right. You know. I don't know. Um. And then uh, we cut back to the resort, and uh, Bill uh, performs essentially on command, right? Bill's um, a company man. Yeah, and the, the director specifically calls out Bill at dinner and says, what's happening in Atlanta? And Bill acquits himself well, but you can tell that he feels cheapened by the whole thing, you yep. know? Like we we've seen at that prior party at Gunn's house, like Bill's good at this, and Bill Bill can, you know, like he can he can hold his own in these sort of company social situations, but he kind of feels like it's beneath him, and he doesn't like it. Yeah, it's it's a good example about how you when you're watching a show like this that's well made and well written and well performed, well crafted that you know you get to know the character and you know what he's thinking and you know that he he's he's saying you know what he's saying and you get that it's it's having a good effect but you also know he doesn't like it because right. you've seen him in similar situations and you've kind of seen how he thinks and you've watched his emotional reactions in a similar situation and just like at gun's house he kind of has to fortify himself with drink a little bit like he is conspicuously shown to be drinking in this scene you know and he's he's regaling the director with with talk of Ed Kemper. Um, yeah. But, you know, like a, he's... Yeah, a good description about yeah, the size of he, Ed Kemper's size and hands and what he did for his crimes. Right, but, he, and, but, you know, he he swallows, you know, two fingers of scotch in, in one swallow. 
Yeah. Right. You know, and, and there's a little bit of the implication that like, this is what he needs to get through the whole thing, you know? Um, but you know, look, he does what he, he does what he has to do. Uh, like, you know, company man, you know, the term company man can be, can be very, very negative or just a little bit negative. Um, and I think here you're probably using it in just a little bit negative way. Like no, we're fond of, we're fond of Bill, but he's got to do what he's got to do. No, Bill is, you know, he's, he's impressive. Yeah. Like Bill, Bill's able to hold his shit together. Like when it's on the line, like Bill's life is falling apart. His kid might be a budding serial killer, right? His, his wife is losing her shit and falling apart. And, and, and still, you know, Bill shows up on time and he, uh, he does what's asked of him. Um, and then just to sort of accentuate all that, uh, he calls home and has a pretty frosty conversation uh, with Nancy, right? She's yeah, already she asked him bed. to come back again. Yeah. You know? And he's like, he's sitting there at this thing, you know, in this, this retreat that he hates, he's going out of his way to call her and he's, you know, he's clearly, this is not where he wants to be. He's performing like a trained monkey. Um, he does not like it. And she's like, why don't you take off from work and come help? Because I, I, I'm having trouble handling all this on my own. Right. She regales him with the story of the park and how upsetting it was and how frightened she was by Brian. Like she's she's like literally like she's metaphorically, you know, she's hanging off the edge of the precipice and she has like one finger of one hand holding her up. And, right. You know, Bill's got nothing. He says, like, I don't know what to say. You know, like he's got. He doesn't have any sort of emotional support that he can lend her because he's just, he's out of gas himself. And like you said, she says, come on home. He very, very quickly says, no, no. And yeah. she responds, I can't do this by myself. And he says, you're not alone, which falls on deaf ears. And she hangs up on him. Yeah. And he's literally I mean, left staring at the receiver. I mean, I think Bill wants to say like, you know, listen, uh, you know, grow a backbone and, right, but he but doesn't he, can't. he doesn't can't. say that he doesn't say that he you know he 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 tamps it down and he's very polite with her but um the strain must be right and she's very she's, high. You know, she's rude to him and then yeah. how does the scene end he swallows a huge drink in one gulp yeah right well, now he really needs a drink if he didn't work before. <laughs> he can't blame the guy. And then uh, he walks back in and he goes right up to the bar and they conspicuously show his drink getting filled. And he says to the bartender, make it a double. And as the scene ends and we fade away from the resort, you know, Gunn is setting him up to once again perform on command and yep. regale everybody with a story of Manson. Right. Yep. So, you know, we've seen Bill have the equivalent of about six drinks in about five minutes, right? He's, yeah. he's essentially on his third double. And even the make it a double comment, even though he's asking for booze, it fits so perfectly in the context as a, as a joke relating to them wanting to hear about Manson. You know, so they're like, tell us, so tell us about Manson. He's like, well, you better make it a double then, you know, that's so it, it just right. fits in seamlessly. Yeah. Another example of how good he is at it. Right. And it's also an example of how well the show is written. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the writer is writing multiple scenes that sort of are taking place simultaneously and overlapping. Yeah. Yeah. It has, it has multiple entendres. Right. 
Um, so we cut back to uh, Wendy and her girlfriend, who, who we haven't seen before in this episode, and she is doing the ever-popular Cosmo quiz. Uh, well, Wendy is uh, sitting at the table working. Right. Um, she's she's reading a Cosmo quiz to her psycho her prof- professional psychologist uh, <laughs> girlfriend. And uh, and and you know Wendy. Wendy tries hard to get out of it. Like she, she doesn't make eye contact. Like she keeps her eyes on her work. She even says like, eh, this is kind of a stupid idea. Like I don't really want to do this. Right. Uh, and then uh, her girlfriend, is it Kay again? Kay, yeah. right? Kay kind of pushes a little bit and says like, come on, let's just do this stupid little thing. It's fun. Um. And uh, and Wendy really won't have a part of it, right? Like Wendy's sort of burying her face in her work, and Kay calls her out on it. I think um, Kay's picking on her again a little bit too, because Kay knows this is BS. I'm sure. I'm assuming that it is, but I, you know, but Kay is also a little bit correct in the sense that, like, you know, she's wondering, like, does Wendy really want anything out of her besides sex, right? Does Wendy yeah. want to talk to her? Does Wendy want to interact with her? Does Wendy just want to, you know, roll in the sack every once in a while? Right, and she asks her, she says to her, like, well, if you don't want to do this, tell me about what you're so intently working on. And Wendy says, no. And then she prods her again, and Wendy says, it's this interview. Right, and she describes the Bateson interview. Yeah, she doesn't say that much really about it, except to say, I feel like I didn't get that much out of them. And, you know, I know this, I've studied these people, but this guy kind of walked out when I got to the important part. Right. And then uh, Kay says that she got rope doped which is an expression that Wendy is unfamiliar with. And she basically has to explain it that, you know, look, he let you sort of expend yourself. And then when you were kind of worn out, you know, he, he could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it didn't seem like the interview was quite that bad, but when Wendy, you know, describes i mean he did abruptly leave and i think wendy just has a sense that she could have done better maybe you know i guess she's once again she's realizing it's not that easy to talk to them well and and you know it's funny because i actually thought the interview with bateson was was really interesting and they got a lot of important stuff and insight out of him you know yeah i, I thought think it was that, reasonable but i think what bothers wendy is that she's not in control right like she she finds out that the whole time the you know bateson's running the interview right she thinks she's running the show and then it turns out that he's he's actually running everything right the thing essentially starts and stops on his command um, and he only gives them what they want, and their lines of questioning only go so far. But he talks about what he wants to talk about. Like, Wendy got played, essentially. That's what I think bugs her. Not that they got good stuff or bad stuff. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure she just feels like, you know, he, right, it was on his terms. The amount of interviewing he wanted to do was on his terms. I, I think she never realized how they can walk out. You know, maybe she just didn't realize how, you know how it's it's not that easy just to direct the course of an interview and direct interaction with someone. And you know, Kay, who's not supposed to be stupid, like Kay is supposed to be street smart. Like Kay kind of you know cuts to the core things. Kay very wisely says to her, you know, you don't have to be an expert at everything the first time. Yeah, like she sort of points be. out that maybe you're just being very very hard on yourself. Yeah, which it seems like she kind of is. 
Right, but that's Wendy. You know, Wendy's yeah. Wendy's hard on everyone and everything all the time, including herself. Like she doesn't she doesn't know how to turn it off. Like in a weird sort of way, like Wendy's more like Holden than anybody else. Yeah. Right. You know, she's in this mode twenty four seven. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you know, Wendy doesn't relax by watching you know an episode of Good Times or Mash. Right. 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 She, she's like Scotty. I gotta throw, I gotta throw a Star Trek reference in here. It's like, <laughs> it's like that episode where, uh, of Star Trek where Kirk confines Scotty to quarters and, you know, he's like, you're confined to quarters. And Scotty's like, oh, yeah, I'll be catching up on my technical journals. And he's all happy yeah. that he can like sit in his room for a day and just read, you know what I'm saying? Like he's right. like, that's Wendy, you know, like, like she she's can't, like, she's she like Scotty. She's like Scotty. If he would feed stray cats. <laughs> Um, so we cut back to Holden, who's hanging out in the hotel bar, uh, watching the news. Um, and the news is essentially uh, documenting their failure to accomplish anything today. Um, yeah. Holden is, unlike Bill, who's sort of like, you know, chugging hard liquor. Bill, Sorry, Holden is uh, sort of sipping. Uh, he's sipping a beer. Uh, but uh, but Holden does uh, get to interact with Tanya a little bit. Right, who initially is the one that it told him about, informed him really, you know, took him to that barbecue joint back several episodes ago and informed him about the, the Atlanta murders. Right, and he sees her logging into the Vax computer <laughs> at the yeah. uh, at the hotel desk. Well, he was kind of trying to ignore, trying to avoid her. Yeah, but he kind of recognizes that, you know, he kind of can't or shouldn't, right? Uh, and then she actually like he has his back to her and she calls him over she spots um, him yeah and uh you know interestingly you know she is not flirty at all right he kind of had seen the flirty tanya before when she was manipulating him on his first visit to atlanta yeah uh, and the flirtiness is not present and to use a word for the second time in this episode she too is a little bit brittle like this is an episode about people that are you know at the end of their ropes yeah um and he tries to he tries to warm her up a little bit. He says, "Look, you know, we're here officially now, and we're working with Atlanta PD, and we're you know we're really part of this now." Right. Um, but uh, he doesn't get very far with her. Like she's she's very chilly with him. Yeah. You, know, you, you kind of wonder, like, is this going to blossom into something, or is it not? You know what I'm saying? Like, is she going to react to him differently if they make progress in the case? You know, but like at this stage of their relationship, like, you know, the bloom is off the rose, and she's, you know, she's kind of pushing him for information that he can't give and and doesn't want to talk about, and you know, she kind of, uh, you know, recognizes that he's not giving her anything really important. But she does, however, drop a nice tip on him, which, you know, she gives him a little insight. Ironically, is probably the best way to get hold and date you. <laughs> um, you know, she tells him, like, some of these, these boys were, were kind of at the margins, you know, like some of them were dealing drugs and some of them might have been engaging in prostitution. Right, or, or selling anything they could get their hands on, right? Right. And, right, making and themselves available to the public in, in some ways more or less savory than others. Right. So that they were learning to make a living, legal or not. And she sort of points him in that direction to investigate, you know, investigate pedophiles, investigate criminals, or like find them somebody by, you know, sort of 
approach the underworld. Right. Look in those circles and maybe you'll find who you're looking for. Look then, under the rocks. Yeah. Right. And then um, once again, showing that uh, sort of paralleling Wendy and Agent Smith with Bates. And, you know, uh, Tanya initiates the conversation by calling him over. And she also terminates it. Like when when she's kind of done with Holden, she uh, conspicuously takes a phone call. Like she could have let it go to the machine or whatever, but she conspicuously conspicuously takes a phone call and lowers her eyes down to the desk. And Holden is uh, it is conveyed to Holden that he is dismissed, right? And he just walks off. Yeah. Um. Back to the Tench household. Uh, Bill arrives. It's implied it's very, very late at night. He takes his shoes off by the front door. Um, and the house is quiet. And he's just sort of creeping around in his underpants. <laughs> he's trying to get undressed and get in bed. And does he seem like drunk? He's almost um, like he's stumbling a little, but I'm yeah. not sure if he's taking his pants off or stumbling or what. Yeah, and he gets in the bed wearing his dress shirt. <laughs> he doesn't even bother taking his dress shirt off. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the implication is is he drank to excess at the at the yeah. resort, and he drove home kind of probably half drunk. Yeah, um, and he's sort of stumbling around, and he probably stinks, right? He probably yeah. stinks like booze. And he gets in the bed, and he spoons Nancy, who is just cold as ice like she's laying there with her eyes open and she doesn't even turn to look at him she's just like fuck <laughs> you know like like you know like she's probably laying there stressed as hell and then her drunk smelly husband flops <laughs> in the bed right her absent husband <laughs> right? reeking of booze and cigarettes <laughs> It is close. Uh, it, if it wasn't so awful, it would be funny. And we're laughing at it because we can, but it's awful. It's awful, but funny. Yeah. Um, back to Atlanta, uh, where Super Agent Barney and Holden are together. And uh, Holden, Holden passes off Tanya's suggestion as, as if maybe it's his own. Like, hey, maybe we should be looking at pedophiles. Like, he doesn't he doesn't credit her with the idea. He kind of pretends it's his own. Uh, And Barney says, I don't know anything about that. Well, you know, you can't, I, you can't expect the guy to be like, well, you know, I was talking to the girl at the reception desk and she (laughs) said, (laughs) right. The girl who I'd like to bang and I'm getting nowhere with. Yeah. This this Um, girl, there's, I got a little tip from one of the hotel employees about how we should (laughs) conduct our investigation. Atlanta PD shows up just at the moment that Bill uh, gets there from the Atlanta airport. Bill, the um, perpetually late Bill at this point. And then uh, Holden lets him know that the police chief does want some advice from them on how to conduct the investigation. So that's actually good news. Um, and then Holden uh, schools Atlanta PD, which he's, you know, this is, this is where Holden's good at it. He sort of schools them in their methodology um, and, uh, he, you know, he pitches this idea that, you know, he's probably visiting the crime scenes, you know, let's see if we can lure him to one of the body dump sites. And let's go, you know, he says like, he may have, he may, somebody may have seen him come back or there may be some evidence at one of the former crime sites 
or you know dump sites, and they should expend their effort where there's a high probability of get, gleaning some more information, i.e., go canvas uh, potential witnesses back at the at, you know where victims were, where the sites are, you know, and they have what is it like sixteen victims 18, or something? Yeah, eighteen. Yeah. And so, the, and the police are very hostile to this idea. They're like. We've been there. There's nothing new. Like, what are we going to find? We re-interview all witnesses. Right. Come on. And, but, you know, Holden says that, you know, they go back to the scene and we have to go back. You know, we may turn something up. Somebody may have seen them. We may find some evidence. You know, we may learn something that we didn't know. This is where you have to put your resources because this is where the probabilities are highest that you're going to learn something. And, uh, you know, he makes a good case. And then the police chief, you know, the guy kind of comes around and he picks one of the, one of the criminals and he says, let's go. All right, we'll go to, uh, sorry, one of the victims. And he says, let's go to this one. Right. I think it's Earl they go to, right? Earl they investigate. And then they go back and uh, uh, we see Holden, but by the way, we see Bill once again, wearing his plastic raincoat, which we've seen before. Um, And then they, they talk to a woman who's sitting out on her porch in the rain. It's Bill and Barney, right? No, it's uh, uh, hang on. It's, it's, uh, I think it's Bill and Barney and Holden goes to the, Holden goes with the chief to the, to the dump site. Yeah, you're correct. It's Bill and Barney and and Bill and Barney go to interview is about the, the victim. Like they go to the, uh, where like, I'm not sure if it's where he was last seen or, but they go to like, they go to, they go to re canvas basically. And they interview some like local, um, you know, a black uh, middle-aged woman who's sitting on her porch, and right. she says she's always rain. out on her porch because it's hot. You know, and she's very, very um, uh, observant, and she basically just says like, "No, they used to hang these two kids hung out, and I so they used to go to that house and that house." She's very specific, right? And then, and this leads them to another house where they speak to another woman. Right. And they talk to the son, but this basically leads them to the discovery that two of the victims knew each other, right? Luby and Earl. Yeah. Two or three of them, maybe even. Right. But at this point, we just know that it's the two, right? Right. Uh, And it also leads them to the conclusion that because the, these people basically say no one has ever talked to them. Right. And it implies that the police did a crappy job the first time. Yeah. They, they're not, they either, it's either a lack of effort or it's, it's inappropriate theory or you know lack of scope right or just bad police work you know what i'm yeah. saying like yeah, like it's the key people that they should talk to right right and it may be just that you know they're not talking to any like locals because they keep thinking it's a clansman or that that's what they you know like it they're just they're they they missed a lot bottom line they missed a ton right so you're actually right then they realize that uh, Luby and Earl also knew Patman, Patrick Rogers, another, another boy victim, yeah. right, who went missing. And again, you could this sort of shows you, I think, maybe in a better way than some of the the scenes at Stop have the you know why there's so much distrust for the police. Like the the people feel like they're not being taken seriously. Like they're the ones with information. They're the ones who who know the the reality on the ground, and no one's bothered to come by. Yeah, rightfully so, because that's a big piece of information. And and also, you know, and that whole, this little scene where they're interviewing is also another very good scene. It tells a lot. 
right. um, about what's what's going on. And then the scene is interrupted where uh, an agent comes to the door and says that they found another body on Red Wine Road. Uh, so the two of them just sort of like flee the scene no, to like get the dump out site, there. Whatever, like right. yeah, like the dump site of the that they were that the chief was going to with Holden. Right. And it's less than a hundred yards from the site of another body, right? And then they realize that there's actually a total of three bodies have been dumped essentially at one site. And Holden again says to anyone who will listen, this is one person. And he says, like, we found his spot. Like, this is a spot that, you know, he's dumped multiple bodies and he's come to multiple times and it's one person. Right. And then a, a sort of a, a beat officer comes up and says that they found uh, some porno mags nearby. Right. Yeah, and they uh, also with, they have no forensics also. Like they don't have a they don't have a team at all to investigate. And then Bill and, and uh Holden talk about they have to get somebody like qualified team there to, to get the evidence up. Right. Because while they're there, the the third body is actually found, right? Yeah. Um, so they come upon these very, very badly decayed bodies. Um, and they, they've also, by the way, in addition to the porno mags, they found some tire tracks. Right. And they get prints off the porno mags to a white uh, man plumber. And they think, like, the cops get all excited about this because he's got a little bit of a rap sheet. Right. Yeah, not not uh, much though. Not much, right? He uh, stole like, some tires. Yeah, he stole tires when he was eighteen or something like that. Yeah, he was a teenager, um, and uh, you know, he he hands the, the the police chief hands the 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 guy's record over to Holden and says, "What do you think?" And Holden says, uh, "Yeah, not not our guy. Like the porno mags are white women, not." black males you know right uh you know holden's very sure that they're 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 still looking for just one guy you know all the bodies are at one site but holden again comes back to like nothing about this guy fits the profile it's not him and they point out for example that he's driving a pickup truck not a police type vehicle as they're kind of expecting yeah and, you know, they're sort of at odds, like they're sort of going off in different directions. And then Bill sort of jumps in to be the bridge between the two and says, let's just bring him in at least to rule him out because we have to, you know, we have to look into this guy because we found these porno mags with his prints on it at the, the dump right site. The scene. Yeah. And there was something else like some clothing or something there. I don't know. Yeah, found. he had something else. And yeah. then uh, they're sort of forced to go awkwardly to a society event to essentially get a warrant from the DA. They got to get the DA to basically participate and go get them a, a warrant to bring this dude in. Right. This guy with uh, not a lot of record and not a lot of evidence tying him to the crime. Right. So right. Uh, they get uh, put off by the, the Mater D at the hotel where this event is taking place. Yeah, um, it's quite something. Um, and, uh, they drag the DA out of this, uh, some sort of event where he's honoring town musicians. Yeah. Something, yeah. something that looks awful. Um, and he's, he's not happy about it. No, no. Although there's one funny bit in the scene where like, like while they're waiting for the DA to come out, like Bill helps himself to a piece of cake from the event. Yeah. 
<laughs> and like Bill is just wolfing down this cake. Like it's pretty funny. Yeah, he basically like he sticks him in this like side room where they're like prepping the food to be brought out to this ritzy society fundraiser event at these tables where people probably paid like five hundred bucks a plate, you know. And Bill's like chomping down on the food that they have sit <laughs> laid out to go out to the society bells. It's really funny. Like I'm telling you, I want to hang out with Bill. Like Bill would yeah. be great to go out to dinner with. Yeah. Um. So then they uh, they have to make their pitch to the DA, and they get into a little bit of uh, you know behavioral science talk and they're trying to convey that we really we really need a warrant on this guy even if uh you know it's a little bit light you gotta give us permission to go ahead and do this um and the da is cold on this he says i don't issue warrants based on psychological theories like that's unlawful search and seizure i can't do this and then Holden, after uh, not speaking for the whole scene, Holdy says, Luby Jeter is missing. The clock is ticking. Like, we got to right. do something. And yeah. that is what kind of tips him over. And, yeah. and the DA he says, said well, I'll give you the phrase. warrants, but no press. Like, that's the yeah. exchange that I want. You got to keep it quiet. Want. Right. Yeah. Um, and Bill, uh, Bill says, understood. Meaning, essentially, recognizing that they got everything they wanted. Like, shut up. Like, the guy gave us what they wanted. Um, and then uh, they uh, they arrest the white guy, right? They, right? they go to his house, which looks uh, hey. By the way, his house uh, it's like the rural equivalent of Kay's neighborhood, like you know, sort of like like West Cupcake shithole, yeah. uh, where he lives. And uh, they arrest him, and they don't let him see that they're taking his truck, right? Right? They don't want him to know that the truck is towed because they don't want to tip off that they have anything that's potentially. Uh, in the in the truck right um and you know his wife is sort of like yelling what's going on what's going on there's a helicopter like it's a very chaotic scene right right and and, uh, and, and holden takes him. one look at the guy and he's like no no it's not him. right but they're still burnt. obviously you know they're gonna bring him in and they're gonna give him the treatment which involves him cooling his heels sitting there at night like in the middle of the night and just letting him sit there and sweat and everybody right, keeps just showing there. up. Yeah, he's just sitting there chain smoking in a room and they're purposely leaving him alone to sort of stew in his own juices, so to speak. Exactly, because they know that that is effective. Like, that's what you got. That's the way to go. And, right. And everybody keeps showing up saying like... Including the commissioner. Gotta, yeah, we got to go interview this guy. Like, get going. And they're like, no, you let him wait. <laughs> somebody else comes in and says like, what are you guys waiting for? Let's get in there and interview this guy. And then they say, no, you got to wait. Right, because they point out, you know, Bill says to the commissioner, like, we may get only one shot at this guy. Like, we've got to get him the right way and the right circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, the press gets wind of uh, that they've got somebody. And then Holden, in, in a great bit, Holden says, um, you know, Holden stands up and he kind of makes like, I'll handle the press. You know, he stands up. And he, he announces to the room, I'll let them know it's an ongoing investigation and we're in the process of IDing bodies. And the commissioner goes, <laughs> Smacks I don't him down. think so. Yeah. And then he like, the commissioner like storms out, basically like elbows holding aside. Right. Like you're not the face of this investigation. Like if anybody's going to be on TV, it's going to be me. Yeah. Oh yeah. This guy wants, yeah, for sure. It's this guy. 
And then, but it does, it does make Holden sort of wonder like how the press knows everything, right? They're leaky, right? Somebody yep. on the task force, right, is, is getting paid to talk to a reporter, right? And yep. Holden looks out the window and he sees the, the commissioner uh, sort of with the onslaught. Right, but press. also sort of like handling the press well and getting them to sort of follow his lead and sort of say what he wants to say. And then Holden kind of realized he's been played by the commissioner, you know, like Holden's yeah. watching us out the window and he realizes like, huh, look at that guy. Yeah, and that's then the where it ends, ends, I think. Yeah, yeah, it, ends, yeah. it ends with Holden looking out the window. Um, yep. You know, this episode and the episode that follow are both tough in the sense that, you know, like nobody catches a break and I'm just foreshadowing the next episode a little bit, but you know, like the tension is not going to be broken anytime soon. Like, like they're not really making progress on any front, you know, like Bill and Nancy not getting anywhere, Holden in Atlanta, not really getting anywhere, you know, like it's just frustrating. Right. Wendy yeah. and Kay not really getting anywhere. Um, right. But there's you know, some there's some really well done little scenes that are just super tightly done. You know, yeah, in this no, episode. it's it's, yeah. it's it's super well done. But I, you know, it's tough. But again, you know, they if they don't have an episode like this, right? You know, when they have payoff, you know, in bigger scenes, right? It doesn't right. have the same impact. Like they've got to have the slow burn so that when they actually get somewhere, right? Yeah. Um. There's it, a it has meaning. Right, exactly. Right. If you want to watch the same thing every freaking episode, just watch NCIS. Right, where they where they solve everything in 40 minutes. Not only right. do they solve it, but the crime is the same. The, everything's the same. The same, it's like the same 42 minutes of television over and over and over. And that's probably why it's like the number one show. You know, this is the first episode of the season that is directed by Carl Franklin, yeah. um, who's done uh, some film and TV work, actually uh, quite a bit of, uh, of stuff. But, uh, you know, he helms uh, the next uh, four episodes, including the last episode of the season, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. That, and, and again, I'm, I'm just jumping ahead a little bit. Episode seven tonally feels very much like episode six. Um, this episode, by the way, was written by Josh Donan and Courtney Miles from, the, from a teleplay by Courtney Miles. Um, so, you know, these are people that have handled most of the episodes of the season so far. And these writing teams essentially handle the rest of the, the season in terms of story content. So we're going to have the same writers largely with the same director from here on out till the end of the season. Yeah. Um, you know, just speaking about seasons a little bit, it's sort of interesting. You know, Netflix has not greenlit or approved season three uh, of the show yet. So, you know, we're, we're rapidly getting to the end of season two. You know, there's only three more episodes between now and the, the end of the series. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen with the show. You know, um, yeah. uh, Fincher uh, has... Uh, implied in some interviews that there's going to be another gap. And I don't know if you remember, there was a two-year gap between season one and season two. And Fincher is currently working on film projects. So my suspicion is we may be looking at another uh, extended gap before we get another season of Mindhunter. Yeah. Although Fincher has said uh, publicly that he 
he wants it to go five seasons. And I read an interview with Houghton McCallany uh, where he also said that he did really believe that the show would go the full five seasons. Like he kind of implied like if, look, if David Fincher wants five at the end of the day, we're going to get five out of Netflix. Hmm. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how long. And I I personally really hope it doesn't go uh, doesn't go two years between. You know, you know, Bill because he's older, right? Holt McCallany, he looks the same. Like Holden John Groff visibly ages between season one and season two. Like he looks yeah. much less baby faced here than he did in the in the first season. Yeah. You know, so it'll be interesting how they handle that because you know if they jump again two years, you know then. You know, Holden, right, John Groff, you know, is going to age five years, right? Yeah. And what's supposed to be a relatively short span of time. Whereas Bill, because he's older and his hair is gray, you know, Bill's, I always joke that like most men reach their sort of terminal haircut, right? By the time they're about 40, right? you, you acquire the haircut you're going to have until you're dead, right? Yeah. Like that's your terminal haircut. Like I've arrived at my terminal haircut. Um and, uh, you know, Holden's not necessarily there yet, but, you know, you get the sense, like, when Bill's 75, he's going to walk into the old man barber and ask for a flat top, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, I don't know. I hope we're not looking at a two-year gap. I hope not. Um, episode seven, uh, just as a little foreshadowing, it's, a, it's another tough one. Like, episode six is tough. Like, it's all about frustration and delayed gratification and, you know, on the unknown, like, you know, dealing with the unknowns of your situation and where you're going and when, how you're going to turn out. And episode seven is just to get a little bit there is very, very much in the same vein, but, uh, hmm. but the season does it, the season is building up to something. So Whew, that was a long one. We covered a yep. lot of ground in that episode. All right. See you next time. Yeah. All right. right. We'll pause there and we will be back uh, next time for season two, episode uh, seven. But actually, you know, before we do that, we have to give a shout out. We got a very, very nice email from Kathy. Actually, a series of emails from Kathy Radford, uh, who who informed me that uh, we are her favorite podcast. And she she, uh, really, really enjoys the show and in her own words is obsessed with the show. So that was actually nice to hear. Uh, again, you can always contact us at uh, mindhunter.companion at gmail.com. And we can also be reached at uh, popcorn drink combo. That's all one word popcorn drink combo at gmail.com. All right, let's do a wrap there, okay? All right, we'll see you guys all uh, next time for uh, episode seven.